I really think there's something powerful about naming it because then it immediately allows other students to feel like they're not alone in that thought. And so I do encourage you all to, when you feel safe to do it, say it out loud because first of all, I think it does kind of deflate it a little bit. Welcome to Unlocking College Life, real talk about all things college. The best part of this podcast is that your voice is part of the show. Other students care what you have to say. So through your questions, your feedback, and your real talk, we all grow together. Let's dive in with your hosts, Joy and Alona. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Unlocking College Life. Today, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, imposter syndrome. And Alona and I were just talking about that. So first of all, we're following up on our perfectionism episode because I think a lot of imposterism can stem from those feelings and pursuits of perfectionism. So I do think it gets wrapped up in some of that. But what we want you to think about today is how can you learn to be content with how you are versus doing the comparison? Because I think what sometimes happens with imposter syndrome is that students can feel like they're doing okay they can have their own standards. And then all of a sudden, when we start to have self-doubt, or if we start to question, like, do I really deserve to be here? Like, wait a minute, like, how did I get into this school? You start to notice around you, maybe some people are doing more, or someone got a job that you didn't think was possible. And then all of a sudden, your sense of your own achievements or your own standards starts to get a little topsy-turvy because all of a sudden now you're doing the comparison game. And so what I wonder for folks to think about is how can you start to really use some of the mindful techniques that we've been talking about on this podcast and start to really tune into how do you know, what are your standards? How do you know when you're meeting your own standards and not sort of getting caught up in comparing to other people. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think that when we do feel particularly unsteady, that is sort of when we tend to go to these externals, when the internal voice is not particularly strong. But imposter syndrome affects so many folks, so many very, very successful folks. I think it's really good to remember that. And it's really fascinating to me where we tend to apply sort of the internal locus of control and external locus of control and how we can at times look at our success as maybe luck. And then when others are succeeding, we attribute that to their either hard work or talent, just have a very different view of that. And the whole imposter syndrome really is about sort of feeling like a fraud and the fear that we will be found out and that maybe, yes, we made it to this school or this program or have had this success and that success, but one day someone will just find out that it's all a fraud and that maybe I'm not that good. So one, of course, I'm going to go back to mindfulness and sort of practicing mindfulness of care and thought, right? And acknowledging, oh, I'm noticing the thought that da, 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 because there is such a difference between sort of of saying I am a fraud and I am noticing the thought that I might be a fraud. And so feel that difference. One of them is sort of a, a little bit of an identity and one of them is really putting a little bit of a distance between me and the thought. So that's for one. And two, 
I want to encourage all of us to continue to plug in the facts. So an example of a student comes to my mind, very successful graduate student who would attribute, there were some things that would go wrong in her lab and she would attribute a lot of them sort of to her failure and what she might be doing wrong. But when I encourage her to sort of keep track and log what is really happening, it turned out that few of those times, actually most of them, and other factors. For me, it also goes back to track your facts. I do think that they can help us to keep in our lane and going with facts rather than just the emotion mind, the fearful mind, or all the other emotions that can come up with it. And that includes shame, right? I think that big piece about imposter is that I think that we have done a better job. There are graduate schools that include imposter syndrome as one of their first trainings when students enter. And so I think we're doing much, much better job, but I still think think that especially in competitive environments we don't talk about it enough and so shame keeps it a secret and how do you address it if we don't talk about it that i think we still have room to improve upon and remembering that imposter syndrome happens to all of us right i run a large and successful business and you better believe it that these thoughts sometimes creep in you know did i get here by sheer luck or will they find out that i'm some sort of a fraud which when i look at the facts obviously that is not the case and i just want to really normalize that this really can show up for all of us yeah as you were talking about the thoughts it reminded me of a mindful practice that i can't take credit for actually founded on mindful.org that's actually called thoughts are not facts which i think is a really great practice and sometimes i'll have students think about how our thoughts can also spin when we're in a place of self-doubt or stress or exhaustion where you could start with the thought like hmm i didn't actually do as well on that exam or that paper as i thought which that part might be a fact but then it can spin to oh my gosh like well clearly now i'm going to fail this class and now i'm never going to get into med school and i don't even know how i got into the school anyway and that's where it starts to like spiral so i think that's what you're talking about too is how do you sort of like back it up which of any of those thoughts were facts maybe the first one right and is that something you can actually do anything about can you have sort of a mm-hmm. realistic picture of that did i study enough was it really just hard but just notice our minds can do that so quickly it can they it can go to the irrational imposterism type thoughts. So just to be able to bring that back. So watch for those stories, right? And examine the facts. And yeah, like you said, there is nothing wrong with wanting to do better. I mean, if that's your desire, sure, then learn from this and do differently in the future, but also grounding it in facts and reality. I think, I mean, it's worth mentioning that I think imposter syndrome can come up even more strongly for students who identify as someone who might be underrepresented in whatever their field is. I actually had a student who wrote an article called Don't Tell Women They Have Imposter Syndrome, like in a business environment, speaking of business, because I think (laughs) that's when students are fighting sort of like multiple levels of imposterism. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's worth naming that there can be lots of layers there too. Yeah, I think that's really, really important, Joy. We do see it in underrepresented groups even more. It's obvious why that is. I mean, there are so many barriers and the pressure is on to prove yourself double or triple. And sometimes no matter how many degrees you have, you're still questioned. And so our culture can perpetuate all of that. Right. And that's sometimes a mindful practice too. Is it yourself that's questioning what you've been doing? Or is it sort of society 
And how do you sort of stay grounded in, again, who you are, what you want, your accomplishments? It's hard. And I think it's really important. And I do think, just to like spin this a little bit, is like Alona was saying, everyone feels this. I think I saw a chart once. It was like a pie chart and it had like three different areas. And one area was like people who have imposter syndrome. And then the next part was other people who have imposter syndrome. And the third part was all the other people who do. Sort of saying that it is normal. And I think what also perpetuates it is people not talking about when they're struggling. And I think we've brought this up a couple times, which is when you're in a group of students whether it's in a classroom or whether it's in some other setting and someone actually says out loud, man, I feel like I don't know how I got into this school. At least five or six other students at that moment are going like this. Nobody can see me right now, but I really think there's something powerful about naming it because then it immediately allows other students to feel like they're not alone in that thought. And so I do encourage you all to, when you feel safe to do it, to sometimes say it out loud, because first of all, I think it does kind of deflate it a little bit to name it. And right when you realize, oh, I'm not the only one feeling this way, it could be powerful for you, for sure. I think it's also powerful for others. And it sort of like takes the edge off some of these really high achieving, productivity focused cultures. Mm -hmm. Depending on, at least in the therapy world, what approach you take, whether it's, I work a lot with DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, and also ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. And so we talk about cognitive distancing. And when you speak this, right, that gives you a little bit of a distance from that thought. The other thing is, if those thoughts are coming pretty quickly, writing them down alone, for example, slows them down. So again, helps us to tap into more. We can examine facts better that way. I like that. So maybe that can be one of our assignments for those for y'all to try is to a start to notice when you're having those thoughts that might be verging on non facts. But I like that too. maybe even capture a time when you are able to be a little bit more vulnerable and say out loud when you're struggling or when you feel like you're a fraud or don't belong. Yeah, exactly. Do I belong here? Do I belong? And then notice that saying it out loud actually does allow you to have a little bit of distance from it. Yeah, it's fascinating. It takes me even as far as that experiment that many students know. The word milk, for example, produces a reaction for many of us. For some of us, good, bad, everything in between. But when you actually repeat that word over and over, it just becomes a bunch of noises. So it is important to speak it like milk, 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 milk. Why milk? So first of all, that experiment has been done, I think, with that word. But for me, it's very, very personal. I had a pretty severe reaction to milk as a child child. And so for me, milk has all kinds of connotations and reactions. So for me, that's a great example to practice with to really play with the word, really. That's what it is. And I will also say, I mean, what tends to happen with, we call this imposter syndrome, and that can sort of pathologize it and then put it into the realm of diagnosing. But really, keep in mind that this is experienced by so many folks, and we don't have to pathologize it either. Um, So I think what I was also thinking about when we're talking about imposter syndrome is what are other ways that we can suggest to interrupt it besides sort of noticing the thoughts. Yeah. And then maybe also in addition to trying to disarm it by 
naming it for others. To me, there's like part one is even noticing that it's happening for yourself and trying to notice when the facts are starting to get muddled. And maybe step two would be in a safe space, being able to name sometimes when you're feeling that and just seeing what happens, seeing what happens in yourself, but also seeing or noticing, do other people sort of go, oh gosh. So I don't know if there's other techniques we can share. Say there's something to be said about well, I don't want to pathologize this, but oftentimes I say we're only as sick as our deepest secret. So I'm a big fan of speaking things. And this could be certainly making it public, but also, I mean, you can play even with, you could put a label on your mirror in a bathroom. And I remember being in a training for acceptance and commitment therapy years and years ago. And I'm not going to go sort of into the details, but we were sort of walking around with that label, that negative label that we all might have. And what happens after a while of having that label and sort of experiencing the feelings, the thoughts associated with it and sort of exposing it, right? Now you had a room full of people, all of us walking around with this sticker, with whatever label we use for ourselves. And it reminds me of just exposure when there are thoughts that produce negative emotional experience, we expose you to that. I mean, we don't want to flood you to a place of no return, but in exposure, we might have you actually record it and listen to it again. And it sort of has a little bit of that similar impact of the milk, 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 where it just loses its power. It just becomes words that you have been exposed to. So I don't want to get too far on a tangent here. And I also don't want to simplify actual treatment protocol, but it would be interesting to see what our students experience, one, possibly speaking it, writing it down, exposing themselves to it and exposing it. Yeah, this also makes me, it sort of reminds me of talking about failure also, that there's sort of an importance to name what didn't go well, where our culture doesn't really model that very well. So I once was talking with a faculty member, we were talking about sort of like failure and imposter syndrome. And this faculty member said, it's so interesting, because you could go to our website for our college, and all you'd see is ranked XYZ and got one 100 research grants and blah, 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 right? Like that's, of course, that's what's on the front page, you want students to be attracted to it. And then this faculty member was also said, what's not on there is all the grants we didn't get whatever, the experiments that didn't go well. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. It actually reminded me that some people have actually proposed like failure resumes, which I think is really interesting to consider. Because I do think when we're always focusing on what went well, it is hard to see also that what was hard also shaped us. And, And the more we avoid that, we're not learning either. So I know this might feel like a tangent too, but to me, it is connected. Mm -hmm. It also reminds me of sometimes I get students whose project in the lab didn't go well. And there's a lot of pressure. I mean, if it's part of their dissertation, of course, you want the results to turn out the way that you hoped. But also, even if it doesn't turn out that way, it's still part of science. It's still a building bridge for someone else and maybe even for your own next experiment. I understand. I mean, we would want the straight line. Who doesn't? But For me, it also comes back down to also the why. Because all of these experiments, no matter how they turn out, and yes, I understand you want to be done with dissertation and you want good grades and all of that. Again, who doesn't? But also, if my why is, let's say, to sort of accelerate XYZ research in ABC field, 
or discover new ways to target ABC. For me, even ruling out the path that didn't do it, even if it's a detour, seemingly a detour, it still is part of the why. Uh-huh. And growth often happens on the edge of this, like the not the direct success. And so I'm sure we all have a reaction to that. But I just want to go back to what is your why? And if it's still in line with your why, I think that makes it a lot more, again, sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not looking at it necessarily as a failure as a result. Right. And even that word failure, I wish we had another word for it. And my guess is in different languages, it might be different, right? Because it really is. There's so much growth in that. And I think when we are feeling imposter syndrome, we're not necessarily failing. Again, we're not seeing the whole picture. Mm-hmm. We're often short changing ourselves. And it really is a self-worth thing at that point. We're starting to doubt ourselves. We're starting to think, oh my gosh, it's luck that I'm even in this position anyway. Everybody else is achieving, achieving, achieving. But if you tapped most of those people on the shoulder and said, wait a minute, do you feel like you belong here? They might be like, I don't know. Some days I do, some days I don't. So I think we would like to leave you all with these few things to try. And please tell us, go to our Instagram, tell us how it goes. So number one, how do you notice when your thoughts are sort of spinning and how do you notice which ones are facts and which ones aren't? How can you try to be a little bit more vulnerable about this and name it and see what's the impact on you? Again, you're connecting differently with yourself and then what's the impact on other people? You're connecting differently with other people in that space too. And we'd love to hear what you think. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. Okay. See you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on your favorite pod platform. Share with your friends if this is making you think about and participate in college differently. We want to hear from you. Connect with us on Instagram and let us know how it's going. This podcast is not professional advice or replacement for therapy. If you need professional advice, You should find it with professionals in your area, such as your primary care physician or therapist.